0: Hi, everybody. Looks like I ran in the door just in time. Uh, Our scripture reading today is from James 2, 14 through 27. And it is titled, Faith Without Works is Dead. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can the faith have, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one is, one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled with giving them the things needed for the body that is good, is that so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, Was not Abraham, your father, justified by works when he offered up his own son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith has, active, has was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteous. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and went with them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also is faith apart from works alone. Amen. Good
1: morning, everybody. Am I on? I am on. Okay, good. Good to see you. Yeah, yeah. Welcome to fall. Summer's over it's dead. I'm mourning. I'll get over it, so it'll be, it'll be all right. Uh, this week, I watched the 1979 film, Stalker, by the late di- Russian director, Andrei Tarkovsky. Everyone's favorite, right? Anyone else seen Stalker? Really? Okay, we, ha- we actually have somebody. i I'm amazed. Um, uh, and why did I watch this movie? I watched this movie because I heard uh, one of my favorite philosophers reference it on a podcast, and I live for approval, so I uh, watched it on my own time. And this movie was three hours of moody Cold War Russian imagery that feels something like a cross between Cormac McCarthy's The Road meets Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Last week, Ellie Carlson gave us Moana, (laughs) this week I'm giving us Stalker. Um, (laughs) Sorry, everybody. (laughs) And these pictures basically sum up the mood of the film. It was really slow and depressing. But in this movie, there are three. There's the professor, the writer, and the stalker. And the stalker, uh, that word is actually, in Russian, it's more like a guide. He's the person who is guiding these other two people through a post-apocalyptic wasteland to a beautiful place that we only know as the Zone. And they make their way through these like burned out desolate cities and they're hiding from these shadowy figures we presume to be some kind of cops or government officials. And they finally make their way to this more lush, green, beautiful place called the zone. But they're not just trying to get to the zone. They're trying to get through the zone to the very heart of this region, which is called the room. It's very simple, very easy to follow. You have the writer, the professor, the stalker. The zone and the room. That's like the entire movie right there. And this room that they're trying to get to in the heart of this place called the zone, uh, in this room, they will experience their heart's desire. In the room, all of your deepest dreams will come true where you get what you most deeply want. And so they travel all the way to this room. They end up uh, right at the threshold, at the precipice of this space. And as they're about to go in, The the writer and the professor have cold feet. They stop themselves. They don't actually want to go in. They second guess whether or not this is a wise decision because they realize in that moment that they may not actually know what their deepest desire really is and whether receiving their heart's desire will make them happy or will actually make them miserable. The room reveals all. The room exposes what's in the heart. And what if they aren't who they think they are? And so, which begs the question how can there be a gap between the, what we think we want and what we really live towards? How can we know what is actually deep in our hearts? And how can we live with? greater alignment of our desires and our wills and our actions. This morning, we're continuing our series in the book of James, uh, which was a, one of the earliest New Testament letters that was written by Jesus's brother to the church that was scattered all over the ancient world. And if you've been reading through James or if you've been here over the past few weeks, you know that the book of James packs a punch this letter doesn't let us off the hook with a bunch of sort of feel-good themes. Instead, it has one of, one of the main themes of James is that if we profess to follow Jesus, if we say that Jesus is Lord, but if our lives don't line up with that profession of faith, he says we are self-deceived. We're fooling ourselves. We're tricking ourselves. And we are pitiful people. The book of James, it's, it's calling us to what we we're referring to in the series as a robust discipleship. It calls us out of a shallow faith that's sort of based on consumerism and what we can get out of Jesus and into something that is more real and substantial, something that can withstand life's trials and come out even stronger through them. And today's text in James chapter 2, it calls out one of the integrity gaps in our lives. The places where our lifestyle and actions don't actually line up with what we say we believe. Now, this theme, I believe, is actually a very big deal one of the greatest enemies to the way of Jesus throughout history has been and remains still the massive chasm between how many people live their lives and what they say they believe. We can call it hypocrisy, you can call it moral failure, you can call it hidden sin, but one of the strongest forces that leads people away from faith or into what we commonly call today deconstruction is this gap. And, for, and if we're honest with ourselves, this gap exists in every single one of us. I'm going to have a lot of uh, philosophy quotes this morning. Does that sound okay? Right on. Okay, this one's a long one. Buckle up. Here we go. Dallas Willard, predictably, <laughs> wrote this in his book, The Divine Conspiracy. He says, non-discipleship is the elephant in the church. It is not the much-discussed moral failures, financial abuses, or the amazing general similarity between Christians and non-Christians. These are only effects of the underlying problem. The fundamental negative reality among Christian believers now is their failure to be constantly learning how to live their lives in the kingdom among us. And it is an accepted reality." It is now understood to be part of the good news that one does not have to be a life student of Jesus in order to be a Christian and receive forgiveness of sins. This gives a precise meaning to the phrase cheap grace, though it would be better described as costly faithlessness. we, We often speak of people not living up to their faith. But the cases in which we say this are not really cases of people behaving otherwise than they believe. They are cases in which genuine beliefs are made obvious by what people do. We always live up to our beliefs or down to them as the case may be. Nothing else is possible. It is the nature of belief. And the reason why clergy and others have to invest so much effort into getting people to do things is that they are working against the actual beliefs of the people they are trying lead. Let me read that last paragraph one more time. We always live up to our beliefs or down to them as the case may be. Nothing else is possible. It is the nature of belief. And the reason why clergy or churches and others have to invest so much effort into getting people to do things is that they are working against the actual beliefs of the people they are trying to lead. We all live what we believe. We can't do anything else. We can't help but live what is really in our hearts. And sometimes we have moments where we get glimpses of what's really in there. There are moments in our lives that bring us to the sudden realization of what's really deep in our guts. And here in James chapter 2, James is walking us to the threshold again asking us to consider whether what we really want, what we really desire deep down, is in fact what we say or think that we want. Throughout the Bible, there is a consistent theme that the heart, you know, like we live in a world where we talk all about how you should follow your heart, just follow your heart. But the Bible says that the heart is actually extremely unreliable. In fact, The Bible says that the heart is prone to deceive us. Look at what the prophet Jeremiah writes. He says, this is what the Lord says. Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who draws strength from mere flesh and whose heart turns away from the Lord. That person will be like a bush in the the wastelands. They will not see prosperity when it comes. They will dwell in the parched places of the desert in a salt land where no one lives. But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when the heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve." What this text is saying here is that one person trusts in the wrong things and lives towards those wrong things and ultimately is declared to be under a curse. And the other person trusts in the Lord and lives his life towards God, oriented towards him and all that he does. And he is blessed in everything. He's described as one who is planted by streams of living water. His roots shoot towards the water. He's robust and strong, and even when the heat comes, he stands firm through it all, and he's bearing constant, healthy, ripe, juicy fruit. But here's the thing. This word picture, uh, we, we miss something in our modern day and age. Uh, the, the word for the bush that the cursed person is described as is an arara bush. An arara bush is a bush that exists out in the middle of wastelands. It's, and, and when you come to it, it looks like it has this ripe, plump, juicy fruit. But when you open it up, it's actually totally dry. And the insides of it carry a poisonous substance that, that um, Bedouin people use to make sort of poison arrows with. What he's saying is that the person who trusts in himself looks just as ripe and juicy and fruitful as the other tree, but when you come to it, you see that it is nothing but empty poison. It's a mirage. Both from the outside look fruitful. So the question is, how do you tell the difference between them? And God says it's about the heart. But then he says, but the heart is super deceptive. God says he will judge the person to see what's really on the inside. And he speaks of a threefold test. He says that he will search the heart, he will examine the mind, and he will weigh their deeds. This is how God cuts through the deception, the BS that our hearts produce our minds and our deeds are what reveals the heart. And essentially, he, what he's saying is that there's sort of like a, there's like a checks and balances within our being that our heart may mislead us, but if we, if we don't wanna be misled by our heart, we just need to check our minds and our deeds. And sometimes our hearts, or our minds will mislead us, so we need to check the hearts and the deeds. Each of these things working together will reveal and expose what is totally true at the deepest level. Reformed theologian Thomas Kramer says this. He says, what the heart loves The will chooses and the mind justifies. And so we all live towards something. And what we live toward, it shapes who we will become and is revealed by how we live. You guys following me? This is really basic philosophy, but you guys still sticking with me? All right, awesome. Another way of saying this is that we will become like whatever we worship whatever we make ultimate in our lives, and we may not always be aware of what it is at the deepest level we are worshiping. Again, the reformers, they refer to our hearts as idol factories, that we are worshipers by nature. Here's what we read in Psalm 115. He says, our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases, but their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak. They have eyes but cannot see, they have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell, they have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. It's the inverse of the principle that we see in 2 Corinthians 3.18. I don't have a slide for it, but where the Apostle Paul says that we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into his same image from one degree of glory to another. That as we behold God, we become like him. So the inverse is true. As we behold lesser things, idols, or whatever it is that we worship, we will become more like them or as David Foster Wallace famously wrote in his commencement speech to Kenyon College called This Is Water. How many of you have heard that speech or read that speech? It's one of my favorites. This is how he says this. This is another long quote. Bear with me. He's not a Christian, by the way. This is just his observation of how life works. He says, you get to decide what to worship because here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They are our default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. Isn't that amazing? Here's the thing, nobody wakes up in the morning and says, my aim is to consume. I know it will make me happy. I just need more stuff that will make me happy. But many of us in this room wake up with a subconscious thing in the very deep recesses of our souls that believe, even though not consciously believe it, subconsciously believe that maybe just this other thing will in fact fill that void in my life. Or that career promotion, or that sexual partner, or a hundred other things. What you worship will determine who you become. And if we worship, Wrong thing, it will eat you alive. And the problem is that our beliefs, like our deepest beliefs, are buried under the surface. So the challenge of our discipleship is ultimately one of alignment. It's about aligning our hearts with our will and our mind. It's about daily shrinking the gap between what we say we believe and what we really live towards. As philosopher James K.A. Smith writes, Jesus's command to follow him is a command to align our loves and longings with his, to want what God wants, to desire what God desires, to hunger and thirst after God and crave a world where he is all in all, a vision that is encapsulated by the shorthand, the kingdom of God. How are we doing? A little philosophy heavy this morning. You guys still with me? Okay, hope that you enjoy this. This is actually all for Justin up in the balcony. Hey, bud. I wrote this sermon for you. <laughs> and so this, all, this actually finally brings us back to the book of James. How can we know what's in our hearts? How can we be sure that what we are living towards, what we say we believe, how can we avoid being self-deceived? James chapter 2 says this. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is that? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by actions, is dead. But someone will say, hold on, I have faith, or you have faith and I have deeds, Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good, even the demons believe that and shudder. You see, many of the early reformers were actually really uncomfortable with the book of James. Some even contending that the book of James shouldn't be included in the canon of scripture because of passages like this, particularly in James chapter two. Their concern was that James was pitting our faith against our works and that he was teaching that our justification comes from what we do rather than what we believe. The fear was that followers of Jesus would become dependent on their own righteous actions rather than being justified by Jesus' death on the cross. The gospel the good news that Christians believe and hold fast to, it goes to war with a particularly potent notion in our culture today that you get to heaven by being on the right side of a cosmic balance sheet, hoping that your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. And that if somehow you're just in the black and not in the red, that then you'll be given entrance to heaven. But the Bible teaches us that this way of thinking is utterly hopeless, that no one could possibly live in such a way where they would be sufficiently capable to atone for their own sins. No amount of righteous deeds that you do, if you were to give everything away, if you were to serve the least of these with your whole life, that there is nothing you could do that would be able to pay for the debt of sin that each one of us carry. The problem isn't just that we do bad things, it's that we think bad things. It's that it's the misplaced worship that we give to other things. It's that even the good things that we do are often corrupted by our selfish and sinful motivations. We all stand before God with unclean hands, guilty as hell. But Jesus... Jesus, this is the gospel. Jesus lived this perfect sinless life that none none of us ever could. And he went to the cross on our behalf as our atoning sacrifice. And as Jesus breathed his last on the cross, he broke the power that sin holds over us. He broke the consequences of our sin. He broke the power of our sin. He broke the effects of our sin. And it pronounces us, everyone who puts their faith in him as forgiven, made new, Made clean, a new creation. And that alone is how we can be justified. No good deeds could possibly justify us before a holy God. We can only be justified through faith in Christ. But James isn't arguing that. He isn't even saying that our good works are better than faith or more potent than faith. Here's what James is saying in this text He says, What you do reveals what you really believe. How you live shows us what you really believe about the gospel. Another way of saying it is that everyone is living their faith. And the warning from James is about whether we really have faith in Jesus if our lives don't reflect the lifestyle of Jesus. The way that we live, it pulls back the curtains on what we really believe. James is saying talk is cheap. It's really easy to say the right things, to know the right doctrines, to reference the right verses. Anyone can play that game. As we talked about a couple of weeks ago, our brains are actually hardwired for this, that that the reward centers of our brain, the chemical rewards that we we all crave and we live towards, there is a chemical reward in your brain uh, that you receive by simply talking about the right thing simply signaling that you believe the right thing rather than actually doing the right thing. Long before there was, and long before we had any idea about neuroscience, James picks up on this idea. He, he's, he's going to war with what our flesh loves to revel in. He says, suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, it feels good. It's like you get the same reward as if you actually gave them food and you clothed them. But but if you do nothing about their physical needs, what good is that? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. And this verse, it cuts to the very heart. It cuts to the moment that we live in. We live in the wealthiest nation on earth, in the wealthiest moment of human history. Every single one of us in this room is among the most prosperous and comfortable people to have ever lived. And yet, the truth is, there is immense need all around us. There's poverty and suffering and pain. There's sickness and loss. There's fear. There are orphans and widows, refugees, immigrants, people who have been sinned against and whose lives have been shattered to pieces people suffering from addiction or mental illness and living on the streets. And for many of us, it's far too easy and comfortable to walk past the person on the street corner with their hand out rather than engaging them and meeting them where they're at. And that is to say nothing about the immense global poverty that exists today. And in the face of such suffering, we easily justify our lifestyle by nodding to these problems with a hashtag, being on the right political side, voting for a person makes us feel like we've done something. Or we shrug our shoulders and we casually quote Jesus when he said, the poor you will always have with you as an excuse for why these problems are permitted to continue. And here's the, f- the thing, friends. I'm not speaking as someone who has my act together on this. I am in the exact if you are feeling a little bit of weight of conviction right now, it's because I'm just sharing my conviction with you. This is the stuff that God's been speaking to me about all week. I'm convicted and troubled by James calling out cheap talk. I can talk with the best of them. I'm good at it. I do it for a living. But pulling out my wallet or making time for the poor, even the poor in the church, James references these people as brothers and sisters. That's really costly. And it reveals the st- something about the state of my faith, at least something about it. It reveals that Jesus can be the Lord of my quiet time, my morning devotional where I open my Bible and have a cup of coffee. That he can be the Lord of my working hours or how I parent or my marriage. But the truth is that he's not always the Lord of my time. He's not always, in fact, the Lord of my wallet. In the Middle Ages, uh, during the time of the Crusades, a really, really dark time for the church, um, there was a common practice among the soldiers that would be getting ready to be deployed out to the Middle East. Uh, before they would go, they would all be baptized and um, because they needed to get their sins forgiven just in case they died on the battlefield. And so what they would do is that they would go into the waters and they would be holding their sword and they would hold their sword in their right hand and after they were being baptized, they would be totally immersed everywhere except for their hand that held their sword. Because they knew that they needed to be totally transformed, but that that transformation might have something to do with how they loved their brothers or the atrocious acts that they were about to, to commit down in the battlefield. I'm not trying to make some big statement about, about a position there. I'm just saying that the action that they were taking was, Jesus, you can have all of me except for this. And this is something that we laugh at the idea of, except that for many of us, that's how we live our lives. Jesus, you can have all of me except for my sexuality or for this, or except for this relationship. Jesus, you can have my Sunday mornings and you can have my Thursday night at life group, but my career, I got to do stuff to get ahead. And James would say that the problem isn't with the specific sin that we are holding on to. He says the problem is that holding on to the specific sin is revealing something about how you believe God is. It reveals what you really put your faith in. Dallas Willard again writes this in the Renovations of the Heart. He says, we don't believe something merely by saying we believe it or when we believe it, or or sorry, we don't believe something by merely saying we believe it, or even when we believe it, that we believe it. Sorry, I missed that up. We believe something when we act as if it were true. You don't believe something because you nod to it. You believe something when you step out and act on it. We are called to exercise our faith. We are called to align our belief with our way of living. James points to a few people from the Old Testament scriptures, and he says this, Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. He says, Abraham was considered righteous because he took his action and his faith and he brought them together. And in that marriage, it was finally complete. He was considered righteous because of the way his belief governed his life, that he worked out his faith by taking real risk and trusting God. And in trusting God, he discovered more of who God is and was discovered to be God's friend. And similarly, Rahab had a terrible resume. She had every reason in the world to not be included in the family of faith, much less not be included in the Bible. She was a prostitute. She was an outsider from God's covenant community. She had nothing to do with God's people. And yet, she acted in faith. She lived out a hope that Yahweh would care for her and save her. For these two, their faith isn't a theory it isn't a curiosity to study. Their belief in God was life and death. Their whole life flowed from their faith in who God is. And as if, and in the same way, if, you're, if your body is split from your spirit, you die, if you split your faith from your works, your faith will wither and die. My friends, this is all about living a whole life. It's all about aligning our lives with our beliefs. And even scarier, it's about taking a hard look at what we really believe based on what we are living towards. Am I living towards God or am I living towards other things? And what are these other things doing to me? If I'm honest with myself, is sex or power? or pleasure or success or image or possessions or comfort or self-righteousness or politics or service or activism? Are these things leading me to live and experience a life that is fulfilled or contented? Or are they, as David Foster Wallace so aptly put it, eating me alive? St. Augustine wrote about how we live as pilgrims on a journey looking for the home that we were created for, he famously penned these words. He says, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. Augustine is saying that there's really only one that we can worship and find the blessing and the contentment, the, the rest that our souls long for and that everything else in this life will leave us wanting You see, unlike what David Foster Wallace wrote, we contend that it does really matter who we worship. You see, God our Father doesn't eat us alive. He sets a table for us. We give ourselves to the God who gave himself. God doesn't stand off at a distance, giving commands and expecting us to merely do his bidding, He's not looking at our actions and our deeds and saying, like, you better put up or shut up, you know, perform for me. Instead, when we are at our worst, he is the one who acts by giving himself as a sacrifice for for us. God doesn't demand our good deeds, saying, go fix the brokenness of the world and the pain, everything that your sin caused, this is on you, go figure out how to do it yourself. Instead, God rolls up his sleeves He gives himself in Christ to take on the evil and brokenness of the world. And the truth that we read in the scripture is that as we worship this self-giving God, we will become like him. Our faith in the one who gave everything for us will transform us into the same image as those who give ourselves away. And so here's the thing, that the beautiful thing about belonging to the beloved community, to being a Christian, being part of the church, is that we are not a people who perfectly execute the alignment of our faith and our works, but we are a people who come week in and week out desperately trying to close the gap and acknowledging the gap and worshiping the God who is supreme above everything else while still being aware of our own brokenness. It's good to be a Christian. It's good to be in this space. If you leave here this morning feeling dejected and broken and without hope, my friend, you didn't hear me right. The gospel is that we are all in that space and Jesus is the one that closed the gap by his shed blood. So, who are you worshiping? And what is your life revealing about what you believe? God extends an invitation to every single one of us. And the invitation is not do better, be better. The invitation is come follow me. Amen.